So this morning I'll read uh, I'll read the first part of Romans uh, and then actually I'll read 18 to 20 uh, 25 because that's our immediate text uh, for Romans chapter 8. Uh, we'll look more at verses 18 to 24 and then kind of go through and explain what it says. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look this morning, we have been in Romans uh, chapter 8 for uh, some time now, and explaining how it's joined to Romans chapter 7 in the context, even with the intense battle of spiritual warfare that wages in our members as we seek to kill sin in our flesh, as we seek to put to death uh, sin in our members as we seek to use our members for the purpose of righteousness uh, for which we have been saved. And so uh, this morning, what I wanted to look at is I wanted to look at the glory in our suffering, glory in our suffering, because that is what Paul is dealing with uh, with respect to Romans chapter eight, verses 18 uh, to 24. And it's fitting that I had prepared this sermon uh, previously and then uh, had that extended absence. But uh, it's a blessing to kind of undergo and even personally and experientially go through a certain manner of suffering and then come out on the other side of it and try to understand what are the Lord's purposes in our suffering. And so Paul the Apostle deals with that. Uh, but he also joins all of that to the end times. And in fact, as we look at this context, we are beginning to come to terms with he's going to start moving us toward the plight of God's remnant, the people, Israel. And so as we move forward through this text, we are coming to Romans chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11. And then we also look at some other features as to the practical application of the Christian life. And then in Romans 13, we deal with the Christian's disposition and role in the face of government. Uh, so all of this is building up toward how is the Christian uh, both Jew and Gentile believers supposed to live their life for Christ, and what have they been called to? Uh, so there are many reasons why the end times are exciting for the Christian, even as we look at our context. Uh, there are many reasons why this life can be at times very empty, very disappointing, why there can be often a sense of failure, a sense of hopelessness, if we are looking to this life alone for assurance. And here Paul is throughout this entire context, he's trying to give us a view toward eternity. 
He's trying to fix our thoughts, our hopes, our sanctification, all the things that are ours in Christ, our justification, even the fact that we'll be with him, as I'll talk about in the text forward from ours. It's all pointing toward eternity, and that's the perspective that the Christian has to have. Uh, So we do not look to this life alone for our assurance in Christ. But it is Paul in this text, specifically in verses 18 to 24 and 18 to 25, where Paul is dealing with and reminds the believer he's uh, he's dealing with glory in our suffering. But he also reminds us of two things. Our suffering is not for its own sake and the glory is not for its own sake. And so with that perspective, Paul is pointing believers to eternity. And this glory that I'm speaking of is not for our glory. It's not for our glory. He's not talking about personal glory as it is either related to suffering or as a result of suffering. It is instead this glory to which he refers is a glory that we're waiting for. We're waiting for someone who we need to give us eternal hope. So we're waiting for someone who will deliver on the promise of not only our salvation, but a hope that is realized because of our salvation. We need that. And so that's what Paul is dealing with. And so anytime that we have looked at passages that deal with suffering or the Christian's relationship to the world around them, it's always good to start with our eternal expectation, because that's what Paul is concerned with. He's concerned with in our suffering, there ought to be an eternal expectation. And I know sometimes you and I can get distracted to that point. Quite honestly, we look at the world around us. We look at our own personal problems. We look at the things that we're going through and we can only see it from a temporal vantage point. And so therefore, we try with temporal resources, ingenuity, our our abilities, our talents, our so-called gifts, We try to alleviate suffering for ourselves, but we are inadequate because we need someone outside of ourselves that has come to indwell us in this glorious salvation that we have. We need that one to come and to not only give us an eternal expectation, but to give us a hope that is realized. But we are burdened. We are burdened. And Paul knew this when he writes to the Romans. We are burdened, we are weighed down with our fallen nature that we're at war with as believers. We're weighed down by the fallen world. And there's an enemy of our souls who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy us. He wants to steal from us, he wants to kill us, and he wants to destroy us. And if that isn't enough, then you have there's a world system which is presided over by the prince of the power of the air, Satan. That is what the Bible refers to him as. So in all those things, quite honestly, the true Christian is indeed public enemy number one. And when Paul writes what he does, he writes as if that's true, that the true Christian is indeed public enemy number one. And true Christian discipleship, if anyone talks about discipleship without talking about suffering in Christ, then they're not talking about true discipleship. But true Christian discipleship is an induction into suffering for Christ. You will suffer and you must suffer. 
And you'll bear the burden, you'll bear the scars, you'll bear the marks, you'll bear the marks in your body. But we first notice in Romans 8, chapter 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, we notice something. We notice that our suffering is indeed time stamped. For Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says he considers that the sufferings of this present time. Our suffering in this life for the believer has an expiration date. At some point, that suffering for the believer, it ends. It ends. So Paul reminds the Romans, and he reminds us, that their suffering was for the present time. It was a suffering that would take place for a time and for a time only. And it is not only that he says that to them. It's not only that he tells them, well, your suffering is going to last for this present life. And then he leaves them to try to guess and figure out everything else. No. In fact, what he does is he compares the suffering that the Christian will endure in the present time. And he contrasts and even in some ways compares it uh, to help elevate our thoughts. He compares it. With the coming eternal glory of the returning Christ to be revealed to us. So as we look at the glory in our suffering, that is the first thing that I want you to consider. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. They're not worthy to be compared. So they must only be contrasted with. But they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if you look at your suffering as a Christian and you begin to compare it with a lot of other Christians, or if you compare it with perhaps unbelievers who may be for this present time prospering only to face an eternity where they'll be suffering. If you compare your lot, your station in life to that then there is certainly hopelessness. And there are certainly calls for comparison. But if you compare your suffering, whatever it is that you're enduring, whatever it is you're going through, be it in your body, be it in your thoughts, be it in your mind, or from the outside influences or from the world system, whatever that is, it is not worthy to be compared to the eternal glory of Christ returning. It's not worthy to be compared. So now we're talking about the inexplicable glory of heaven and of being with Christ, that there's nothing to compare to that. There have been songs written. There have been experiences written about. There have been people who have expounded on some experience or some bliss that they enjoy. And they try to say that it's a slice of heaven or they try to say that it's like heaven. But none of those things can be comparable to heaven, to glory. And so truly, we could fast forward all the way through to the end of this text and say, who then can separate us from the love of God? Because that's where this is going. Who can truly separate us from the love of God if the things that we suffer in this life can't be compared to the glory that awaits us and that will be revealed to us? And so we see that it's time stamped. It's time stamped. And so whenever we as believers are developing 
a theology of suffering. And all that is to say, we're trying to wrap our minds around not only suffering as a theological concept, but how do we suffer? Why are we suffering? We have to first understand it from eternity's perspective. That the suffering is only for the present time. It's only for the present time. You don't need to create a prosperity gospel. You don't need to speak conservatively and create a prosperity kingdom. You need only to compare what you're going through now. And then in the face of the eternal glory that's to come, you say all this that's weighing me down, all this that's bringing me down, sickness, uh, all the evil of this world. It cannot be compared to the eternal glory that awaits. It can't be compared to it. It is in the face of eternity that our suffering, whatever it is you're suffering, and we are all suffering some type of affliction that has us troubled, if we're honest. We're all suffering some type of affliction. It may be at this hour very small. It may loom very large. But whatever it is, it not only seems small, it is small when we try to place it in its proper eternal perspective. It's small. And I'm not trivializing or making light of human suffering. I'm not making light of Christian suffering. What I'm saying is, if you take it and you look at eternity and eternity with Christ, it's not worthy to be compared with that. So therein lies my hope. Therein lies what Paul will say in verse 25. Therein lies my perseverance. Because I need only make it through this life. And this life concludes, and now I have eternal glory that awaits and will be revealed to me. But if you consider these afflictions, if you consider these afflictions, they are real. That's why Paul writes as he does. When we talk about Christian suffering, when we talk about afflictions, when we talk about their effects, they are absolutely real. You can almost taste them. You can almost smell them. You can certainly see them. You can see the effects on you. You can see the effects on others in this theater of Christian suffering in this life. You can see it. But consider those things in light of the radiance of the glory of Christ, the true glory of Christ, and being in his perfect presence where there is eternal peace and everlasting joy. Because that's where our hope is should be focused. That's what we want to set our thoughts and our affections toward. And that's why we're living now. We're living now in light of eternity. And so that is what Paul says. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation itself. Creation is time stamped. And creation's expiration comes when it is time for the sons of God and the glory of Christ to be revealed. But I want to tell you this, that in all that we're saying, what I'm setting before you is a for sure kingdom. I'm setting before you a kingdom that you cannot inherit without suffering. Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. 
so that we may also be glorified with him. I'm setting before you a kingdom. I'm setting before you an eternal kingdom. And if you're like me this hour, you're await you're awaiting this. This is what you want. This is what you want more than everything that this world is offering, more than anything that this world claims to promise. You want that hour to come where the eternal one will vindicate his saints and bring in his everlasting kingdom. What I don't want and what I don't want you to want in light of this text that we're looking at, I don't want what these men, irreligious or religious, promise me from their counterfeit kingdoms. I don't want that. I don't want them to stamp me with whatever temporal stamp they want to place on me so that I can be inducted into their temporal, fleeting, useless kingdoms. I don't want that. What I want, what you want, what the Christian wants is the eternal kingdom. So come what may, because whatever this life throws at me, it's going to usher me into the glorious presence of Christ. As sure as you and I are sitting here, that is what will take place. That's what we want. I want the eternal king of kings, my Lord, God and Savior to be revealed. The surest test that you want this is not only your affections, but what are you longing for? What do you defend? What offends you? If it is an offense to you that men in their kingdoms are falling, then you have your hope in men in their kingdoms. If it is offensive to you that the kingdom of God is under assault, then you have your hope that the kingdom of God will soon come and the Lord himself will provide vindication for offenses against him and his saints. We want the eternal king. We want the eternal king. We want his power to be revealed. We want his glory to be revealed because that truly is the end of our suffering. That's the end of our suffering. It's not when someone comes and you know, they have a measure of influence or the right person's in office or the right policies are achieved. It's none of those things. What it is is when the eternal king appears. And so he in us, he lives in us and we have the spirit of God in us. And so we resist the worldly powers, but yet we suffer at their hands and we suffer well. But this is a feature of the Christian's walk. I say that because all that's said so far here in these this first one and a half verses, it's tied to our earlier sections in Romans chapter seven and the earlier part of Romans chapter eight. They're just as important to help us understand where we stand in Christ as the life lived in the spirit. And I'll tell you, in some ways, suffering has the same effect. It's not as though we arrive. It's not as though you and I get to a point where we're so comfortable or stoic with the reality of suffering or so cold by it that it doesn't shock us at times. It doesn't cause us anxiety at times. But what we then do is we go to the strong for strength because we want him to be the one who delivers us from even our suffering. But I'll tell you that all of this also deals with assurance. It deals with assurance. You see it. Let me read through verse 19 into 20. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly or waits eagerly. 
for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When we look at those things, the Christian is truly one who is longing for the return of Christ. And in that longing, that is the assured Christian. Your wanting Christ to return is also a mark of your assurance of your salvation. Unbelievers don't want Christ to to return. Those who hate Christ don't want him to show up. They want to continue on with doing the things they're doing, even building their own kingdoms. They don't want him to come. Many today are indeed saying, Jesus, come quickly. To borrow from the very end of Revelation, Jesus, come quickly. But listen to this. What you're finding out is there's a distinction and we have to make distinctions within the church. Many today are saying that they're saying Jesus come quickly, but it's only when their plans have failed. That's not Christianity. That's secular humanism. They only want Jesus to come quickly when their plans have failed. Only when their candidate is no longer in office. Only when they believe that they have lived their lives on their terms. Oh, then it's Jesus come quickly. You might as well show up because the things that I wanted to happen didn't happen as planned. So you can go ahead and show up now. As if he is somehow subjected to your terms. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in all things, even in this text, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of prosperity, and even in those two things, in the midst of your contentment, that the Christian longs for the return of Christ to alleviate the burdens of sinfulness in himself and the world around him. That's what the Christian is saying Jesus come quickly for. Paul is not teaching here that the incomparable glory is somehow captive to which Roman Caesar is in power or not in power. So it's not that he's saying, okay, this Caesar didn't work out. Jesus come quickly. It's that whoever's in power, whatever the world system and the world system is going to be the world system, whatever the world system does. I want Jesus to return because I am a subject of the true everlasting kingdom that will come in perfect righteousness. That is my king. That is my kingdom. That's what I want. The Christian longs for something beyond the world system. We don't make our existence outside of the world, but we long for something beyond it as we have to go through this life and suffer. But more than that, more importantly, you want to know today, my true Christian, and with all the things that's taken place, the true Christian longs for someone behind all the things that we're seeing today. Longs for someone, that someone being Christ himself. But if you look at all that I'm saying, all that I'm saying is because of what the text says. Verse 20 Joined to 19, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Well, listen, the creation itself is useless. So to hope for any eternal righteous features in anything creation related is to set your hope in the world system. But the creation itself is useless and it's useless not because we're saying it's useless, not because a certain party has the office. 
it's useless because of the events of the fall in Genesis 3 verses 1 to 14. That's why it's useless. That's why even when someone shows up and they can exercise a certain moral compass in the world, that is by the mercy and hand of God. But it is certainly not the norm and what's to be expected as we look at the world getting worse and worse and worse because of the fall. So I take you back to the fall. That ought to be our perspective of the world. But the creation is also subject or in subordination to God. You have to understand that as well. It's in subordination to God. So all these people who are coming out and saying that they have a measure of power that seems to be, in their minds, a power that extends beyond God. Well, they're lying to themselves and they're lying to you because the whole creation is subject or in subordination to God. <coughs> and that is God supremely rules over the creation by his will. But we also know we don't stop at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 14 based on what Paul says. We look at Genesis 3:15. And the fact that he is going to restore his creation in hope. His creation. Not my creation, not your creation, his creation. He's going to restore it in hope. It is the promise that the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, will come and crush not only the physical serpent, but the physical serpent who is inhabited by the spiritual serpent. And in that, he is going to triumph. He and his seed, the Messiah, will triumph at every turn throughout the whole Bible, at every turn throughout all of time up until his return. He's going to triumph over the seed of the serpent. That's our hope. That's our absolute hope. So then we ask, why place your hope in the creation? I fear so many this hour are suffering, self-inflicted suffering, because all their hope is placed in a world that is futile. Why place your hope in the creation? Why not place your hope in the one who the creation serves? And essentially, that is what Paul is saying here, because this is Romans, we see as he writes what he does, we see shades of Romans one. Where Paul talks about the role of God's general revelation in creation and in moving forward, we'll see this in this text, even in the verses that we're in now and beyond how the creation longs for freedom from bondage as it experiences the effects of the fall. And so many people long to do what the flesh wants to do within the construct of the creation, whereas the creation is going to at some point be destroyed and then restored to what God desires in perfect righteousness. So you see this it says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him. There there is a him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, let's wait here because I know recognize that this could be a bit of a challenge as we're looking at parts of verse 20 and 21. You have to understand that God is not responsible for sin. He's not responsible for the sin that came upon this earth 
death with it and caused the events of the fall. Adam was responsible. And so what God's role is then is he could have just let creation be completely wiped out, run its course. He could have at the flood destroyed every single person, although he had bound himself to his promise that he would not do so. He had bound himself to the promise of Genesis 3.15. If you destroy every single person, you don't have the Messiah and the Messiah's seed. But having said that, what it's talking about is God then not only took back features of the creation that needed to be restored, but in a post-fall world, God himself ruled over it. And he gave certain covenants and he gave certain commands and he elected a people Israel, which is where Paul is driving toward. And he also established not only the coming of the Messiah, but salvation through the Messiah. And then he established the New Testament church. And then until the end, of, until the end of time, until up until those tribulation events, you have the church age largely responsible for the ingathering of God's chosen people. But that is God. It's him ruling over it. He didn't let it go. He didn't put an end to it, a complete end to it. So you see, even then, the creation could not get out from the one who rules over it ultimately. Even the world system and her kingdoms, they will eventually give way to the rulership of the Messiah, who will crush those other kingdoms, who will make good on the promise of Genesis 3.15, and he will rule in perfect righteousness and truth. But it's not only what Paul says in those couple verses. It's not only that he says that the earth is going to be restored. It's going to be a creation that will be restored from the slavery and decay. So as, so as to make it useful again for the sons of God as they inherit the eternal glory of the kingdom of God. This is eschatology. This is the study of the end times. He's saying that what God will do is he will bring about a kingdom upon this earth where it will be fit for use again for God's chosen people. Jesus will do that. God is going to do that. And so that is what the Christian awaits. It says that the creation itself also will be set free in verse 21 from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of. Of the glory of the children of God. The same freedom that Christians will enjoy. Will also be the freedom that the creation will enjoy. As it has been now restored. And given back to those whom God has chosen. Not in its fallen state. But in its renewed state. Paul is essentially trying to get the Romans to look around. Look around you. Especially with the glory and power of a historic, dynastic, crushing empire such as the Roman Empire. He's getting them to see that even that's futile. I want you to gain a perspective that goes beyond your government. And I want you to look at the government that will rest on his shoulders. I want you to look at the world around you and see that it will be restored to perfect righteousness. And that it will be Harmoniously given to those who are supposed to rule within it. 
That's why I say I set before you a kingdom, the eternal kingdom. That is your hope. That's the power. That's the sanctification. That's the motivation behind those things. Glorification is a motivator for your sanctification. That is what Paul is teaching. In verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He's essentially saying this is what our suffering points to. When the Christian suffers, it points to the redemption for the earth. Where it is set free as are the sons of God. This type of freedom where now it is used for those who are redeemed. It is why the Bible says the meek will inherit the earth. Paul is teaching that point. It will be redeemed. You don't have it now. You don't have it in the in the manifestation of glory now. You don't see it before you now operating in the way that it will. But even I believe all this political angst that's going on amongst even those who are professing to be Christians, they know that there is something that should be different than what is presenting itself now. And I'm telling you that thing that's different is the eternal kingdom that you ought to be awaiting. As you look around and you see what's happening in the world before you, you know that all this is not only meant to be destroyed, it's meant to be restored. It's meant to be renewed. And it groans for such a time. What hope is there really for us in this fallen world where we serve as ambassadors? What hope is there really? We're ambassadors for the eternal king of kings and his eternal kingdom. Outside of that hope, I'm not saying that the Christian, according to ecclesiastical wisdom, we don't enjoy the good graces that God gives to us as a provision. We do enjoy those things, but we don't place our eternal hope in those things. Our eternal hope is in what's to come. Paul says that we recall in verse 22 the futility of the world. But by God's eternal decree, by his eternal decree, by the events that take place even after the fall itself, the immediate events of the fall, God's provisions, by his eternal decree, we see the creation is longing for redemption. Now, I'm not teaching pantheism. I'm not teaching pantheism, I'm not teaching the circle of life, I'm not teaching that everything exists inside the creation and somehow we, we don't have a God who can transcend it. We have to transcend it in our thoughts. I'm not teaching that. That's false teaching. That's mysticism. What I am teaching is that the creation is waiting for the time in which it's renewed. I'm not teaching that God is somehow a part of the creation and can't escape the creation so everybody's groaning. I'm not teaching that. What I'm saying is, is that just as believers have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and are waiting to be redeemed, so too is the creation. Why? Well, the purpose is not just so it can be redeemed. The purpose is so that it can be put to use for his eternal kingdom.
kingdom to come. Yet in verse 23, we are taught that we are indeed distinct from creation as it is set forward here. We are distinct, although we will receive the benefits of creation's redemption. For he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, he's making a distinction. Yeah, the creation groans, but you're also groaning. We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So you're not a part of this circle where you can't transcend creation. We groan within ourselves. Well, why are we groaning? Well, we're groaning for something beyond creation that's better than the creation that we see now. Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We can't explain enough how important eschatology is. The study of the end times. It is so important. Paul wraps it all up into the hope of the Christian. It's so important to look forward. It is so important to look forward. Paul says we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And looking at this, James 1, verses 17 and 19, uses similar language in a similar context. If you want to make note of that, James chapter 1, verses 17 and 19. Similar language in a similar context. And that similar context is suffering and enduring trials with eternity in view. So here, he and James most certainly agree as they do everywhere else because they are of the same spirit. But I'll tell you, even beyond that, both speak in agreement with the prophets, this idea of the first fruits. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3, if you want to make note of that, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3, the prophet Jeremiah described the people Israel as the first fruits of the Lord prior to the judgment that was to encompass the entire nation, or I would even say within the context of the judgment that befell the entire nation. But here, Paul is invoking that language, not only because of who we are in Christ as the New Testament church, but also what's to come as he explains the plight of remnant Israel in God's divine decree in chapter 9. But just as ancient Israel of old, we ourselves who belong to God are the first fruits. And thus it is this hour that we have redemption and adoption. This is our assurance. We know this to be the case. The goal of your salvation is to know that you're saved. That's one of the goals of your salvation. It's not for you to guess. It's for you to know. And so we have the assurance, but yet we await the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is saying, even as you suffer, even as your body's wasting away, even as the fatigue of persecution, of mortification, putting to death sin in your members, of all the hostility that you face, of even just the day-to-day having to get up and face a fallen world under the creation mandate, that even as all that takes place, he says, you are awaiting the evidence of your adoption. You have the adoption, 
But the evidence will be the redemption of your actual body. Paul says that we groan within ourselves for this. We groan within ourselves. Now listen, this word has a lot of range. It can mean a handful of things. But in context, we have to understand what this groaning entails and what is it related to. This is not exasperation and doubt. But it is this inaudible longing for that great day of all that is promised to us in this passage. And we will talk about that more next time when we're together. But I'll say it again. It is not exasperation and doubt. That word can certainly mean that. But in the context, when we look at it, it can also mean uh, some of the other things that it can mean. But it is this inaudible longing for that great day of all that is promised to us. In this passage, that is the groaning in ourselves. So in suffering, then we are now waiting to be with him and made like him and to see him as he is. The hope then is not in our suffering. We're not bracing ourselves. But in light of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, we know we are we will be met with suffering, but we know we have an eternal hope. It is. Instead, not only uh, it's not this idea of hope, hoping, uh, hoping in our suffering, but it is in the salvation that leads through this life to eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what we're hoping. We're hoping at the end of our suffering that we will inherit all the promises of the new covenant and all the promises specifically within that new covenant of our eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is what we're looking forward to. That is what we hope for. It is not the mantra of the civil rights movement borrowed from Hinduism that says our suffering is redemptive. No, it's not. <clears throat> to simply suffer and, and to suffer as an end to itself is not redemptive. In fact, all kinds of false teachings have sprung forward both in society and in uh, charismaticism and in modern evangelical circles to try to address why suffering in and of itself is redemptive. All kinds of management techniques, programs, psychological methods are trying to get you to see why it's okay to suffer. Just pay a nominal fee and we can talk about it. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is as you suffer, your hope is in the fact of what you inherit at the end of your suffering. And that is as sure as the suffering you're going through that it leads to that. That's the hope. And so we know from our text when Paul talks about this groaning, because we'll look at it a little more. We'll, we'll look at it as it comes up again. But we know this groaning is not quitting. He's not talking about quitting this life, frustration with God, anger. He's not talking about that because those things would be sin. And Paul is not charging people to sin. He's not charging them to practice pragmatism, whatever works when you go through something. This groaning is not quitting. It's not anger with God. Although the word groaning could mean that in certain contexts. But we have to look at, well, what is Paul trying to help us with? He's not trying to help us be angry with God. He's not trying to help us be frustrated with God and somehow express that frustration. And quite frankly, God doesn't move by your frustration. He moves on the counsel of his own will. 
But here it is instead. It is the earnest longing for something. That is the groaning that has taken place inside of you. Which is in view in this text. Let me read for us verse 25 or verse 24 and 25. And we'll end today just by looking at this. It points us to the realization of that expectation as the pressures of our suffering become alleviated. Look at this. After he says at the end of verse 23, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? We're hoping for something that's coming and something that's certain. So do you see how disastrous it is for men to build their temporal fleeting paper castles and tell you therein lies your hope? But if we hope for what we do not see, look at this. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So now I'm talking to you about sanctification. Now I'm talking to you about your walk. When I hold Christ in his kingdom before you, that's to stir up in you the means to persevere. Go. Move with strength in him. When I hold up my paper castle, my image, me, that weakens you. That stops you from pursuing the thing you're supposed to look at. Now your hope is in everything else around you. But I don't want to rob God of its glory and neither do you. So we look at that. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. May God bless this, uh, this message. Uh, let's pray.